Your Bible's open to 1 John, the first epistle of the Apostle John. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Who would have thought that on January the 21st of 2024, Detroit Lion fans would still be cheering on their team? Whoever saw that coming, now I'm under strict orders not to give any score updates because several of you are recording, no less than three I know are recording, and I've been actually threatened. So I won't give any updates, uh, but it is an exciting day for Detroit Lion fans to at least have something to cheer about and maybe even get mad about, who knows. Um, I, I have to confess, I was in a missions committee meeting and I might have had the ESPN app on my iPad, maybe, I don't know. But it's just odd. We're not used to this. We're not used to still being in the game this late in January, just into the postseason. It's, it appeared to have been a normal winter around here with the cold weather and the snow, but there was a new detail this year, and it's the Lions doing well. Some things change, but some things don't. See, we do find ourselves in another Michigan winter on January 21st. We've had fresh snow this past week, even yesterday. Uh, it snowed some, a little bit this morning, little flurries. But it's a normal winter because not only do we have cold and a little bit of snow, but we are beginning what's called our Winter Conference Series. It's a new tradition here. This is our third year doing it. And you may have a question like, why another Winter Conference Series? Why, why do we do this? And I, I believe it's important for you uh, to actually ask that question so that I can answer it. Uh, because I am highly committed as a pastor. Every pastor has different styles, different passions and all that. One of my passions is to see the men of our church stand up and lead. It's to see the men of our church take the lead as I believe the New Testament uh, mandates, which we'll see in just a little bit. And I want our men in our church to be stretched to pray more than they normally would want to. Uh, to, to serve more, publicly or privately, more than they are comfortable with. I want to see them study more than they think they could, and even do some, many of them do some teaching, either publicly or privately, we call that counseling. I want them to be outside of their comfort zone, and I want to push them. And so that's why we have a winter conference series. But let, let's, let's get even more specific. Why Another winter conference series this winter. Well, first of all, it's the corporate focus of the church. The goal is for us as a church family to be putting our mind down together at the same time on one book of the Bible in a compressed amount of time. 
to kind of to not take three years to study Luke like we did on Sunday mornings a few years ago, but to take six weeks and study an epistle, the whole epistle. Uh, to take uh, about the same amount of time as we did two years ago and study Philippians in a, in a, in a compressed amount of time with different voices from our church family. Uh, last year, we did an Old Testament book, the book of Ecclesiastes, which was a little bit longer than Philippians in this current new series will be, but we handled all 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes in 12 weeks. And just to see the big picture compressed is good for us. It gives us a deep consideration of the whole picture of one Bible book. That's our goal for the winter series, and that's our corporate focus as a church family. But a second one, as I've mentioned, is male leadership and, and having our men lead as far as being careful students of the word. I want to develop male Christian leaders, four-direction men, if you will. And so what I do, now this is a shorter series than last year, so we don't have all the men participating this time that we did last year with Ecclesiastes. But every year I, I, I think through, I pray through, I talk through um, different men that I want help going through a book with. And then they are pushed. I send out back at the end of the fall, I believe, or the beginning of the winter, no, it was the end of the fall, I sent out the invitations to participate in this conference this winter. I gave them a pretty big list of resources, of commentaries and study Bibles that would be helpful. And, uh, and then I, I, I actually assigned the, uh, the speaking assignments, um, what part they will be teaching and preaching on. And they've been working hard for several months. So even before they even get to the occasion of their speaking slot in the winter series, those men have been stretching themselves and growing as students of the word, getting ready with the best of their ability that God's given to them to love you as a church family and serve you by taking you through a very important part of this epistle. You say, what is that about? Is that just about the speaking engagement? No. No, it's for several months now, before even the series started, I'm pushing our men. I want to see them grow as disciples and leaders in this congregation. I would just put a little pastoral nudge on you on this, at this point. Please, Support your home team of your guys, the men of your church. And don't allow um, the speaker for any particular night to determine your attendance. Come to cheer them on. Uh, last year, after every time the guys spoke, um, they filled out a critique on themselves. They had to watch their own video. And then I sat down with them after that and shared. Uh, I, I did the same um, Sir, uh, eval on them as well and we had a conversation just trying to push so we need your attendance and your prayer and your support as our men uh, strain and grow but here's another nuance I want to I want to push forward not just male leadership that's effective in leading us and helping us here at Calvary today but I have a very keen awareness that God is using Calvary it ha God has for years decades grown leaders in this church and in due time sent leaders out from this church to the mission field or to further seminary training and even into pastoral ministry. And that is an end game that I have too why we have this winter series is we're nurturing a pool of future church leaders not only for our church but also uh, around the world. We don't know what God will do but let's get uncomfortable 
uh, as men and push ourselves and pray for our men as I put pressure on them with this series. You know, a passage that comes to my mind that weighs heavily on my heart as a shepherd, as a pastor, and I know all pastors might not have this burden, but I, I think we should. Not just say we want to grow male leadership in the church, but uh, Paul even writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I want the men in every place, in every church, to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. I, I like that. He's intentionally wanting to see the men step up, stand up. You say, well, I'm not a leader, or I'm, I'm an introvert, or I don't like to speak in public. He didn't talk about any of that in that verse. It's Take the initiative and pray. Uh, you see a ministry need, fill it. That's what the definition of ministry is, seeing a need and responding to it. It's not waiting and see, it's anticipating and initiating ministry. And of course, in the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus are instructed of how to train the young men and the older men. Yeah, that's, that's a lot behind why we have a winter series. I want to cha challenge our men. I guess if there's a fourth reason I would put on that screen, I, I don't have it on there, why we have a winter conference series, it's this, this year. I would just put number four, 1 John. Now, I know we've all read through 1 John, probably many times in our life, maybe in different translations, and some of you have the tools to get into the Greek in 1 John, and good for you, good for you. But the more you study 1 John, the more you're overwhelmed by these five chapters in a good way. First John is, if, if you go to seminary or to a Bible college, if you go to Cedarville, you go to uh, Master's Seminary, you go to Detroit Seminary, and you start learning Greek, you know what one of the first books they're going to have you do translating work in? It's First John. It's just very basic Koine Greek. They don't start you in Hebrews, and they don't, they're not going to start you in Luke and Acts because uh, that's just going to be a higher level of Greek because of the authors, uh, the capability of the authors. But 1 John's very simple. All of John's writing is some of the most simple Greek. They start you here, but don't let the simple Greek throw you. As you get into 1 John, and whether you're doing it in English or Greek, you notice that John, John doesn't have a real linear approach to his writing. He circles around to themes all the way through all the chapters. And you'll see the same theme come up in two or three of the chapters. He always circles back to familiar themes that he's developing. And that just, is, it just whips up an amazing study storm for you to enjoy as you study these five chapters. And after, after the the, you get through these five chapters and you're, you're tracking these themes that he keeps coming to, you are left with some towering truths that you might be able to identify, but you'll spend the rest of your life studying these truths that emerge out of 1 John. That's why this year we're having a winter conference series. We're going to go after these five chapters together. And so, I have a question for you as we get into this. Why on earth, and that pun is intended, while you are alive, your life is still unfolding in this life on this earth. Why on earth must you study 1 John? 
Why is this a worthy pursuit in your life and in your Bible study? And it's here I just want to suggest why. I believe that there are three compelling arguments for you to study 1 John. My assignment tonight, as I have the first speaking assignment in this series, is to introduce you to these amazing five chapters. Three compelling arguments. And my arguments are going to have something to do with the author. They're going to have something to do with his purpose in writing. And they're going to have something to do with how he launches his study. So first of all, what's the first compelling argument for you to study 1 John? I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. Sorry for the small font there. But it says, because he was a life worth knowing. John was a life worth knowing. I mean, as you see this point unfold, you're going to see that out of the 12 apostles, the circle of the 12 apostles of our Lord, it's only John that can actually check all of the boxes. Many of the apostles can check most of the boxes. A few of them can check almost all of them. But only John can check all the boxes I want to identify to you right now. I mean, just think what John experienced, what we know from the gospel accounts. I mean, we can talk in categories of he was on the outside and he went to the ultimate inside. Okay, there was a time when he was not a follower of Jesus. But by the end of the gospel accounts, he can't be any closer to the center of Jesus. Let's do a little tour of Luke. Keep your, 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 your marker here in 1 John and go with me to Luke chapter 5. And let's see his call. John had a call to follow Jesus. And I'm going to go with Luke because Luke's going to keep most of this reminder, most of this brief bio close in context here in this gospel. Luke chapter 5. Remember this? It says, it happened, verse 1, that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at, lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners, mark that word partners, they signaled to their partners in the other boat, singular, for them to come and help them. Okay, there's other partners. There's only one other boat involved. Keep that in your mind. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And our focus here so far is on Peter. So when Pete, Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Amazing story going on here with Peter. But I'm curious about that other boat right now for the sake of our talk. For amazement had seized him, and mark the next phrase, and all his companions. And not only in his boat, but that other boat. 
because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Uh, We know who's in the other boat now. John is. And Jesus said to Simon, don't fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they, we're plural here, had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Yes, it's a story about Peter, but don't forget the guys in the other boat. John's there and he's following and the nets are left behind. This is his initiation of of becoming a follower, an active follower. Had he met Jesus earlier than this? I believe Peter had, possibly Jesus or John had. But right now, from this point on in Luke's gospel, John's no longer on the outside. He's on the inside. He's a follower of Jesus, and he was personally recruited by Jesus. That's his call. And he wasn't a docile man when he was called. He in Mark 3:17 we're told he was called the thunder's son, the son of thunder. He and James were fiery in personality. John's the one that wanted to call down later in the gospels fire from heaven on Samaritans. Let's get them. That's John and James. But Jesus would sand that down for the sake of the kingdom and his glory. If we go back to the or go forward to the next chapter in Luke's chapter 6, he's no longer just a follower of Jesus, personally recruited by Jesus to be a disciple. But in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, he is commissioned from the disciples, the the group that had been growing and following him, he's one of 12 that's singled out again to be an apostle. Look at verses 12 through 14 of Luke 6. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God, speaking of Jesus there in verse 12, And when day came, he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. There's a calling and a choosing and a naming here. Who tops the list? Well, of course, it's Simon Peter, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And then the next two again, we have James and John. So he's not only been personally recruited to be a disciple by Jesus, but this John is commissioned out of all the disciples to be one of 12 apostles. You say, wow, that's a place of privilege. He's gone from the outside into the inside pretty deep now. Oh, it gets deeper. Because if you go to Luke chapter 8, we see his promotion to the inner three, so to speak. Every once in a while there's an inner four, but... John makes the cut into the inner three, we can tell from the Gospels. But I just want to remind you of this story since we're in the neighborhood. Luke 8, verses 49 to 51. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except, and look at what we have here, Peter and John and James. And you're going to see that formula come up several times. He's not only personally invited by Jesus to be a disciple, then personally assigned to the top of the disciple list as an apostle, but even out of all the apostles, he's made the cut into the top three. Every once in a while, Andrew gets in on the action and makes the fourth. I mean, John, on his resume, 
doesn't have any higher level he can go to here, right? Jesus initiated all three of these of bringing him from the outside to the inside. You say he can't go any higher. Well, he does. But the next level for John is something that not even Peter gets in on. John's the only one. And you know what it is? You'll see it. Go over to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. So intimate was he with God, with Jesus. He refers to himself in his own Gospel, the Gospel of John, with meekness. He won't even use his name. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in John 19, we are standing at the foot of the cross. Look at verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scriptures. Look at verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. We spot her again in the upper room after his ascension in the book of Acts. And John is in that upper room too. And all we can understand from this is that John took her in. And tradition does give testimony to that John took her in until the day of her death. No other disciple, no other apostle. No one else on the inner three got that assignment. But John. I mean, you want to talk about a life that went from the outside all the way to the inside. That's, that's John. But we could talk in another characteristic, or another characteristic way about John and that his was a life worth knowing. We could talk about highs and lows. Highs and lows. I mean, can you think of anything more magnificent than what we see in Luke chapter 9. Remember this? Look at Luke chapter 9 with me. In Luke chapter 9, verses 29 to 36. Verse 28, I'll, I'll start there. Luke 9, 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. What does that mean? It means his clothes, it looked like they were the source of light. They weren't reflecting anything. They were the source of light. It's amazing. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had, had been overcome with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. You're John, you're one of these three disciples, and you are seeing a sneak preview of Jesus in all of his Shekinah glory, veiled enough so that you're not consumed still, but sustained by God's grace to see this. He just said at the end of verse 27, some of you standing here are going to see the kingdom of God. You're going to see the, see the glory. It's the glory Christ had from be before time began. 
I mean, I can't think of a higher experience than that before the cross. But what about after the cross? Well, after the cross, you have the resurrection. And did John have unique opportunities and viewpoints from that? Well, in John chapter 20, verse 1, remember this? On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And the two, Peter and John, are running together. And the other disciple, that's John saying, that's me, I'm faster than Peter, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him, and of course he barged right into the tomb and saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb when he entered, he saw and believed. This is John not reporting anything to you that he heard. He's saying what he experienced, what he saw. He was alive. Now he still had to have pieces of his faith put together and, and, and as time would go, uh, go on with the Lord appearing to his disciples, the fuller picture would come together, but John saw. And John was there to see the Lord ascend into heaven with the other disciples. He saw all the highs, if you will. But John also saw some pretty low lows. Just a couple reminders. In John 13, he heard some lows. He heard that when our Lord was talking with his disciples on the that night he would be betrayed, he heard that there was going to be one of the twelve betray Jesus. This is in John chapter 13. And in that same chapter, he also heard the Lord tell Peter, when Peter says, I'll never deny you, he heard Peter's, he heard the Lord say to Peter, tonight you're going to deny me three times. And all of you are going to scatter. That was a Those were low statements in John 13. But it was John, when we get to John 18, who firsthand saw both of them happen in one chapter. In John 18, just later, that same night, Judas sells out the Lord. In the garden, Peter flees, makes his way back with John to the courtyard of the high priest, but in that courtyard, in a very public way, denies three times any association with Jesus of Nazareth. John was there for that. You know, I think, when we talk about the lows and we talk about Judas and Peter, it's interesting, John would obviously never forget this, because he had two men there that professed to be followers of Jesus. Two test cases, if you will. Two professions of faith. And in the passing of time, by the time we get to chapter 18, one of those professions of faith was manifested to be nothing but apostate, Judas. 
I mean, he professed just like Peter at one point to be a follower, but Peter falls away. Not that he loses his salvation, it's just to show he was never truly in. Peter, who went down the same night, by the time we get to the last chapter of John, is rescued by the Lord and humbly accepts his restoration and the mercy of Jesus. You have two types of people there from John's perspective. He saw it unfold in the courtyard and in the garden. Both professed faith in Christ. Both horribly fell. One's fall revealed apostasy. The other's fall, Peter's fall, he saw a beautiful work of rescue. They both professed Christ, but one wasn't saved. And one definitely was. Interesting lows, right? Seems like John might want to write an epistle about that someday. It's one thing to say you're a believer in Jesus, but time will always tell the truth. We'll come back to that. We can talk about outside to inside with John. We can talk about highs and lows with John, or we can also talk in categories of beginning and the end. Say, what do you mean by this, the beginning of the end and the end? Well, we know when it came to being an apostle what the requirements were, because in Acts chapter 1, Verses 21 and 22, Judas is dead, Jesus has ascended, and they have a spot to fill in the ranks of apostle. Peter stands up and addresses those in the upper room and says, we need to fill a spot, and they made it a matter of prayer. And in that whole scene, Peter gives to us in verse 21 and 22 of Acts chapter 1 what the requirements are for an apostle. Therefore, he writes in verse 21, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The requirements for the job, if you were, you had to be part of uh, this group of disciples going all the way back to Christ's baptism by John the Baptist and be with the group through these two plus years, close to three years, when Jesus not only rose from the dead, but ascended to the Father's right hand. You saw both of those. That created the pool from which names would emerge uh, for candidates for apostle. I find that interesting because that's John. John fits that. John fits every bit of that from the beginning. But it's only John, of all the apostles, who will be able to look back 50 to 60 years. He will be the only one to have that much life left after the ascension of Jesus. He's the only one that is going to be able to write Revelation 22. If I can say it this way, and my apologies to a television show by the same name, of all the apostles, he was there from the beginning, but he's the farthest. He has the most miles to go until the end. He outlives these guys. He's the last man standing of the group. The book of Acts as well as history, as well as tradition, tells us some amazing stories about these apostles. Peter, as you know, was crucified upside down in Rome. That's, verif or that's testified by a church father. Andrew was crucified in Achaia by order of the Roman governor. 
James was beheaded, according to the book of Acts, by Herod Agrippa I. Philip was martyred in Phrygia, buried in Areopolis. Bartholomew, Nathaniel, if you will, as one commentator says, one tradition says that the king in a region, or the governor in the region of Babylon, had Nathaniel, I'm not meaning to get too graphic, flayed, and after that, beheaded. You say, why? Because the king's brother had been converted under Nathaniel's preaching. What about Matthew, the tax collector? He preached for two decades. He had some good miles left on him after the ascension. He preached two decades to his own people in Galilee, where it all started. And he was likely martyred by stabbing. Thomas, doubting Thomas, brought the gospel to India. But he was martyred with spears as four soldiers put him to death because of his preaching. What about James, the son of Alphaeus? He was stoned and clubbed to death. Remember Simon the Zealot, the trained assassin who Jesus rescued, made a follower and an apostle? The trained assassin, now a disciple of Jesus, was tortured. And after he was tortured, he was sawed in two. You say, why? Because he refused to sacrifice to the sun god. He would not give up his loyalty to Jesus. Judas, uh, the son of James, was martyred in present-day Iran. And what about, that just leaves John. That just leaves the author of this epistle, John. Well, we know from Scripture that John was exiled to Patmos because of his testimony for Christ. On that island, he was broken physically because he was elderly when he went there. And many believe it was because of his age and his brokenness physically that he was recalled from that island and he died of natural causes. And he died in the mid-90s, A.D. 90s. He died towards the end of Domitian's reign, and many church fathers verify that. His was a life worth knowing. You want to talk about outside to inside, highs, lows, beginning and end? I mean, he checks some boxes the other guys couldn't. But I want you to think of something. It's only five chapters, and it's towards the end of the New Testament. When you get to five chapters, you're almost done with your read-through. No, slow down. When you're reading the Gospel of John or his epistles, or revelation, do you understand that John is the final gospel voice? There's more. John is the final epistle voice. There's more. John is the final prophetic voice in Scripture. Some people have a favorite author. You might have a favorite author. Dick Briggs, who just went to heaven, he, wa- he would tell you to read every book you could written by Louis L'Amour. I think Henry Clay enjoyed that writer as well. I haven't read them. If you're asking me, I would say get any book you can by R. Kent Hughes and read it slowly. Well, that's also a compelling argument for our study this winter. To read John, anything you can get your hands on. He's a life worth knowing, but another compelling reason to read him 
is he gives us a theme worth preaching. A theme worth preaching. I love this about John. And as you're turning back to 1 John, I just want to say that John has a style that just resonates with me. He likes to tell you his main point. He'll hint at it all the way through his gospel. He'll hint at it through his epistles and through Revelation. But he'll come out at some point, usually towards the end, and tell you, if you've been missing it, here's why I've written this. For example, he tells you why he wrote his gospel, John 20, verses 30 through 31. Just listen. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but, here we go, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Say, so why did you write your gospel, John? He says, because I want you to read it. I want you to hear what Jesus taught. I want you to see what Jesus did. And I want you to believe that he's the Son of God so you can have eternal life. That's why he wrote his gospel. He pulls the same tool out in his epistle of 1 John. And he puts it near the end again. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, these things I have written to you who believe, so he's writing to Christians, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that, listen, you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing to you Christians so that you can have ultimate confidence that you are born again, that you have eternal life, that you have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to have no doubt in your mind about that. And this, his readers had been shaken by false teachers who had identified with them at one point. They had professed to be followers of Jesus at one point, but they had fallen away. First John chapter 2 is going to say, they went out from among us that it might be made manifest they weren't really of us. And other believers were starting to lose a little hope, and the, and the foundation seemed to be shaking just a little bit, and John's like, settle, settle. I want to write something to you that will let you know, even though some are leaving, some are bolting, even though there's a spirit of Antichrist bringing Antichrist doctrine within your earshot, you can know that you're not of Antichrist. You can know that you are born again. He's writing to believers for the assurance of their salvation. I like what John Piper says about assurance. The assurance of the believer is not that God will save him even if he stops believing, but that God will keep him believing. God will sustain you in faith. He will make your hope firm and stable to the end. He will cause you to persevere in a faith, I'll add, that produces fruit. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, verse 26, again, John's going to use this language. I'm writing these things so that... But I believe as you look at the themes and the context of those two occasions in chapter 2, they will be a subset of what he's saying here and the testimony of God he's talking about in chapter 5, verses 12 through 20, where you find verse 13. So what he does here is he, it's stated generally in 1 John 5, 13. But here's where there's something extra special about John. It's not only stated generally at one spot, but it's also stated specifically 
And he's going to provide some proofs of a regenerated life. This is not unique to John. If you want to write some passages down, I won't have time to read them with you. Our Lord does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, he's going to write about you need to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He's going to tackle that theme at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to have some parables waiting for you at the end about roads and about houses and about fruit. Paul does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. He says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Peter does this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. After he gives all those virtues of knowledge and, and, and love and brotherly kindness and all that, Peter will say, since we're in the neighborhood, I'll just turn right back to it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And in verse 10, Peter just nails it. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things you'll never stumble. So it's not unique to John that for him to say, you can know that you're a true believer by watching the change that happened in your regenerated heart produce fruit consistent with that. Even John the Baptist talked this way. John the Baptist, as it's recorded in Luke 3.8, says simply this, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. We're not merely allowed to be wannabes. In Virginia Beach, where we used to live, there were a lot of guys, they were SEAL fans, and, and they wanted to find out what the SEALs were driving, and they'd buy it, what kind of, what kind of uh, hats the SEALs are wearing, and they'd buy it and wear it, what kind of sunglasses the SEALs were wearing, and they'd go, they just want to be a SEAL wannabe, but at the end of the day, they're not a SEAL. I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want them to defend my life for any reason. They're just guys or just dudes that are wannabes. And by the way, the, seal, the real seals there know about them. They say, ah, I'm basically a seal. I can look like one, but they sure can't back it up. And Peter and Jesus and John and Paul are saying, no wannabes. You've got to be able to back it up if you say there's been a change in your heart. Now, when interpreters, commentators come to 1 John, there's a little variety on how many tests or proofs people believe are present in 1 John. And there's a range of around five or six to as many as 10 or 11 evidences of salvation. Sometimes I wonder if the number is based on how many chapters the publisher needs for your next book. Who knows? Uh, as I've looked at the longer list, though, I think that I see six broad categories surface, and I'm not alone with seeing six, and that's all the time we're going to take with this series, is we are going to focus on what we'll call the main six tests that we all agree on, and there will be some necessary overlap between these tests. You say, what are the tests that we're going to see in 1 John? Here they go. Relationship with the world. He's going to speak to that in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 5. What's your relationship with the world? 
You show me your relationship with darkness, and I'll tell you if there's a true eternal life abiding in you. A second test we're going to see is obedience to God's word. He's going to circle around to this in chapter 1, in chapter 3, and in chapter 5 in a weighty manner, and then he'll bump into it in the other chapters and other spots as well from time to time. But you say you're a believer, but you don't, you don't even want to know what God's word says, let alone obey it. The burden's on you to prove you're not just a wannabe. A third test is the re, your resemblance of God's son. This one's going to show up several times, most notably in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. Are you growing to be more like Jesus? A fourth test is love for other Christians. And let me just say, brothers and sisters, this one takes up the most real estate in these five chapters. Maybe we should listen. He's going to talk about love for other Christians in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, chapter 3, verses 22 to 23, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, and 16 to 21. And those are the big spots. He's going to bump into it here and there and other places. Seems like we need our attention on that one. Another test is the, your doctrine of Jesus Christ. Is your doctrine of the person and work of Christ on point? If not, you're just a wannabe in the best case scenario. Or you have the spirit of Antichrist, little a, not speaking of the end time capital A Antichrist, but you have the spirit that's already at work in the sons of disobedience, your loyalties to them, to deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And there's one more test. And it's simply the possession of the Holy Spirit. Does the Spirit indwell you? Now, Paul's going to go in far more detail in Romans 8 on this one. But John touches on it here. He touches on it in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And these are the tests that John's going to school us in. You say, well, there's four or five more. I think if you look up what the other ones are, you'd see that they could be, they could be arranged under some of these as subsets. But these are the big ones that everyone agrees on. Now, John has an interesting way of writing, as I mentioned a moment ago. He writes in a circular way. He, he'll, he'll state his theme and then go a little further, then state that theme again, and go a little further and state that same theme again. And that makes a short winter series a challenge. And so what I've, what I've asked the men to do who are coming up after me is I want us to approach the study of John thematically, uh, or with a biblical theology, if you will, rather than a verse-by-verse -verse exposition. Now, the men are free to handle their test the way, they, the way they desire, as long as it's faithful to the text. Some will land and do a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of one of the main passages and then cross-reference the other ones on their theme. But each man will take an assignment of one of these tests to develop it from this epistle. I'm super excited about this. Because, let's be honest, in a church like ours, filled with people like us, there are well-meaning, sincere, even misty-eyed wannabes. And once again, we love you too much 
What you feel around your ankles are our arms pleading with you that if you're a wannabe, come to faith in Christ. Don't be religious. Be a disciple. Be born again. And this epistle will tell you every week. J.C. Ryle says, sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. And he's right. There's going to be change in your life. There are tests for salvation. Spurgeon says, another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If the man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs repented of, and his conversion is a sham or is a fiction. So, it's not just who is writing, and it's not just what he is saying, but what, there's one more compelling argument to study, First John, and it has to do with his opening words, or in particular, What's the third reason we should study it? It's a study worth absorbing. And we find ourselves, as we conclude, in chapter 1. Listen to these words again now. After everything we've covered this hour. What was from the beginning. What we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is a study worth absorbing. You say, what do you mean? It's going to be a very personal study from John. See, what, where, do, where does that come from? Verses 1 and 3. He says, I'm not talking to you about theory or things I've studied. He says, I was there. He uses words that he repeats in verse 1. I, it's what I heard with my ears. I saw with my eyes. I looked at. I touched with my hands. And he says some of that same thing again, some of the same details again in verse 3. We've seen and heard. This is very personal. If you were to put a picture by this first one, it would be, it would be a picture of hands. He says, I touched, I've seen, I've heard. He has to reach back 50 to 60 years. He's kept, he's kept these details alive in his life. Oh, he touched them. It was John that was leaning on Jesus in the upper room, when he was being betrayed, he was touching him. It was John who gave care to Jesus' mom. It was John with other disciples who ate fish with him after he rose from the dead. And then John would live all these decades past these other apostles and be on the Isle of Patmos. And he would hear a voice. And he would turn to, to see the voice. And he saw what he'd seen before in the Mount of Transfiguration. A glorified, radiant Jesus. And he falls on his face. And he feels a hand on his shoulders. He's saying, don't be afraid, John. It's me. It's me. I was dead and I'm alive and I have the keys. It's okay. John says, I'm telling you. He's, my eyes saw it, my ears heard him, my hands have touched him. 
going to be a personal study from John. It's going to be a polemical study. John's going to be the nicest guy that ever took boxing gloves off and punched you in the face. <laughs> uh, that part of him is going to come out a little bit in a spiritual way. If you have a picture of a hand for the first one, you have a picture of the sword for the second one, he is going after the false teachers that are upsetting believers. John Calvin is right when he says, as Christ is the end of the law, and as Christ is the gospel, and as Christ has within himself all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, so also is Christ the mark at which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. And John's like, bring it. Because you guys weren't there. I was there. These false teachers will teach that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He was not fully human. That's why he's using language like in verses 2 and 3, this word of life, this life was manifested in the flesh. John is assaulting the heresy of Jesus not being fully man while equally affirming the pre-existence of Christ. Just like he did in his gospel, in his Prelude to his gospel in John 1.14, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Luther, the reformer, said the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. But it's true. Well, this study will be personal, polemical. It's going to be very practical. For this one, if you want a picture, I'd put shoes. Because he says here, when you see what you have in common, when you know for certain that you fellowship with us, that you have the same life that we have in Christ, then there's going to be an amazing, a practical unity that materializes between you and other true believers. He's going to be, no doubt, leaning back on what he heard his Lord pray in John 17, verses 22 and 23, when Jesus said, The glory which you, Father, have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. I mean, John says, I've written these things so you know you have eternal life. And then when you know that you have eternal life and this person over here has eternal life, there's like an instant magnet that pulls you and draws you towards each other when it doesn't make sense to the world. Well, it's also going to be a very promising study because in verse 4 he says, we want our joy to be complete. If you want a picture for this one, it's simply a heart. You see, real joy in this life is possible. It's the sure impact of the anchor of security that you have in Jesus that will hold you still in the storms of life. And in John 15, 8 through 11, Jesus told his disciples in that upper room, I want my joy to be in you so that your joy will be full. C.S. Lewis says, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. When you know that you are born again, my goodness, does it affect you and give you a joy and a storm. So it's going to be quite a study. Well, Jonathan Edwards once talked about how he studied the Bible and may his words describe Calvary Baptist Church the winter of 2024 as we go into these five chapters. 
Jonathan Edwards said, oftentimes in reading the Bible, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet and powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited in every sentence and such refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading. Often dwelling long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it, yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonders. May God grace us as a church family, corporately, and then when you're home studying John for the next few weeks to study with that seal. Well, okay, so i got to stop introducing 1 John now, or I'm going to trespass on very particular themes and tests that the next seven speakers have been studying. But I have a question out there. Why on earth must you study 1 John, church? Because it's written by a life worth knowing, it has a theme worth preaching, and a study worth absorbing. So here's my prayer. My prayer is simply this, that you, by mid-March, will own eight sheets of worn notepaper, that you will pray for eight studied CBC men and encourage them with your presence, that you will attend eight connected services and see your next eight months impacted for eternity. That's my prayer. So welcome to a brisk journey into these proofs of real salvation. I guess I end with this question. What in your life could be more important than that? Would you stand with me as we're dismissed in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the gift of this epistle, the gift of this author, John, handpicked by you. And I pray that our hearts will be strangely and suddenly curious about every word and every sentence. And may the urgency of these proofs of salvation, these tests for a changed life, be in HD as we walk through this every week and between our gatherings, as we get our study Bibles out and our commentaries, and we go to work too. Pull us into this so that our joy, too, will be full. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. you are-